0: Welcome, friends, to the 5 Podcast, your one-stop source in rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Ruel will be putting a spell on you in Whirling Witchcraft. I'm going to be negotiating in Moonrakers, Mason is going to be dealing out cards in Pinochle, and Ruth is going to show off her green thumb in Village Green. But first, Meeple Lady is going to talk to you about her furry friends in Dog Lover.
1: There are two types of people in this world. Cat people? And dog people. If you are unsure about which type of person I am, I'd suggest going back and consulting episode 117 and my review of Cat Lady. But spoiler alert, I am very much a dog person. Dog Lover, released in 2021 by Alderac Entertainment Group, was designed by David Short and artwork by Callie Fitzgerald. It was inspired by the 2017 board game Cat Lady and is very much its spiritual successor. Dog Lover is a card drafting set collection game in which you rescue dogs, feed them, teach them tricks, and collect all their favorite toys. For those who love or have played Cat Lady, Dog Lover has some of the same elements as Cat Lady, but it changes up some key mechanisms, turning it into a more strategic and slightly more complex game. It has been my go-to 30-minute card game recently. Plus, I cannot resist all the cute canine artwork. In Dog Lover, to set up, you shuffle the main deck and deal the cards out in a 3x3 grid in the center of the table. Off to the side, there's also a dog trick deck, which then you shuffle and flip up three cards. And you do the same with the rescue shelter deck, so there are always three dogs that you can select when rescuing. Each player starts with one standard dog trick. On your turn, you draft cards in the 3x3 grid based on the card placement image shown on your dog trick card. You can rotate the card any which way, horizontal or vertical, as long as you aren't taking more than one card in the row or column the Watchdog token is facing. Once you collect your cards, and this can be more than the three cards you're used to taking in Cat Lady, and play them in front of you or exchange for food cubes, you refill the 3x3 grid with cards from the deck and place the Watchdog token in the exact same spot shown on your trick card, hoping it'll somehow block your opponent from making good choices. In the game deck, There are a bunch of different types of cards. There are dog cards, which give you victory points at the end of the game if they're fed, and they come in small, medium, and large dogs. There are adoption cards, which when you collect two, you can trade them in for dogs from the rescue shelter deck. These rescue shelter dogs can be worth more victory points, but require a little bit more strategy to meet their requirements beyond just getting fed. There are also food cards, which then you trade in for food cubes that are used to fulfill diet requirements for the various dogs. Collect scraps, dry bits, or canned food, but remember, all dogs at the end of the game are worth negative two points if they're unfed. The game also comes with walk cards, which you tuck into one of the dogs you've already collected. These are worth two VPs, and each dog can only have one walk card tucked underneath it. There are also bone cards, which is negative one point for one card. But if you have two cards, it's worth 1vp per dog you've collected, and if you have three bone cards, it's worth 2vp per dog you've collected. Doggos love their bones. Training cards allow you to purchase more trick cards to use on your turn. Having more tricks allows you to draft cards of various orientations, which is very helpful when you're trying to collect that last bone card or a specific food item to feed your last large dog. There are also Favorite Things cards, which are just a set collection. The more unique favorite items you have, items such as a leash, chew toy, or an AEG frisbee, the more points your set is worth. And then we have Traits, which add some complexity to this game. Traits are attached to dogs of a specific size, which allow you to break certain rules of all the previous cards. They're also worth more victory points, but if you cannot follow what is printed on the card specifically, meaning you don't have, for example, a small-sized dog to attach this trait to, you'll have a negative penalty of discarding a card and possibly another card you've already played. This mechanism forces you to manage your dog collection wisely when drafting. Lastly, there's one fetch card, which is a placeholder card that allows you to take a card and ignore the watchdog. The fetch card then sits among the cards in a 3x3 grid, allowing it to possibly circulate among all the other players. The game continues until the end game card is drawn. This card is randomly shuffled among a set number of cards depending on the player count that sit at the bottom of the main deck, meaning you probably won't be playing out the entire deck for your game. When this card is drawn, You play out the rounds so that everyone has an equal number of turns. You then calculate your points, and if there's a tie, the player with the most fed dog wins. If there's still a tie, then the player with the most fed rescue dogs wins the game. If there's still a tie, the tied player that wins the next game of Dog Lover is the winner. And frankly, this game is short enough that you could technically play again in the same night, but more than likely, someone will be declared an official winner the first time. There's surprisingly a lot to keep track of in Dog Lover, from the size of your dogs to making sure there's space among your cards to tuck the card you just drafted, as well as using the right trick to efficiently draft the best cards, and just feeding your dogs so that you don't get negative two points at the end of the game. The artwork alone made this game a winner for me, and yes, I'm biased because I love dogs, but it's also super cool to see some of the famous dogs in the board game industry making their way onto the playing cards. So if you're looking for a more advanced card drafting game that plays out in about 30 minutes, then Dog Lover is for you. It's the huskier sibling of Cat Lady, and definitely 100% possum. And that's Dog Lover. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. This review is dedicated to Luigi. You are the bestest boy. Thanks for listening. Bye!
2: You and your fellow witches are mixing and matching ingredients on your workbenches hoping to brew the most potent magical concoctions. Your creations yield more ingredients for your cauldron that you share with your frenemies. Will you become the most powerful witch in the land? Or will all of your potions blow up in your face? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at Whirling Witchcraft, a game by Eric Anderson Sundin with art by Luis Francisco and Weberson Santiago. Whirling Witchcraft was published in 2021 by Alderac Entertainment Group, who sent me a review copy. In Whirling Witchcraft, each player begins with a workbench, recipe cards, and a few ingredients. Each round of the game is divided into the study phase and the brew phase. In the study phase, players choose a recipe card from their hand to add to their tableau. If there are any arcana on their card, they'll move the corresponding arcana marker on the tracker, which may give them a one-time benefit. During the brew phase, players use the ingredients on their workbenches to fill recipe cards, which produce more ingredients. These ingredients may also be used to fill other recipe cards. After players have completed recipes, they place their newly produced ingredients into their cauldrons, while the ingredients used to fill recipes are returned to the supply. Finally, players pass their cauldrons to the player on their right. All players must take the ingredients from the cauldron and place them onto their workbenches. If there are no spaces available for a new ingredient, then that ingredient is passed back to the player who produced it, and it is placed into their winner circle. The first player to collect five ingredients in their winner circle is crowned the mightiest witch of the world. I got an early look at Whirling Witchcraft at Gen Con, and the way it was pitched to me is how I teach it to this day. Think of the game as like the classic chocolate factory scene in I Love Lucy. You're either Lucy or Ethel trying to stave off the continuous flow of candies on that never-ending conveyor belt. But here, you're basically trying to overwhelm your opponents like Lucy or Ethel. But instead of chocolates, you have five different ingredients. Toads, spiders, mushrooms, mandrakes, and the heart of shadow. If they have no space on their workbench for an ingredient, then it returns to you in the form of a victory point as you race to collect five of them for the win. For example, your opponent has nine spiders on their bench, which is the maximum allowed. If you pass them one spider after the brew phase, they cannot place it on their workbench and must return it to your winner circle for that point. Whirling Witchcraft has been a hit with everyone I've played it with. Designer Eric Anderson Sundin has created a clever and fast-paced engine builder that can be played in 30 minutes or less. Much of the gameplay can be done simultaneously, so there is almost no downtime between turns. What I love most about Whirling Witchcraft is that your engine immediately produces the ingredients you need to complete recipes, and it ramps up quickly. There is no glacial wait to get your engine going. From round one on, you're pumping out ingredients and passing them on to your opponents. Thankfully, there's more to the game than simply producing ingredients and hoping that there are too many for your opponent to handle. Most recipe cards include one or more arcana symbols. Each player has their own arcana track, and every time they move to an even-numbered space, they receive a one-time benefit. For example, if you move the arcana with the cauldron icon to an even-numbered space, then you may take any one ingredient from the general supply. This often leads to an interesting decision on your turn. Do you play a recipe card to move one or more Arcana symbols to get benefits? Or do you play a recipe card strictly for its ability to produce ingredients? Some recipe cards can be rotated. For example, a card may have you loading it with one spider to produce two frogs, or you can opt to turn it around to load it with two frogs to produce one spider. However, once you decide you can't rotate it back to the other side. I love finding the synergy among my cards in my tableau. So. If I have a lot of frogs on my workbench that I can use to complete recipes that produce other ingredients to use on other recipes, then I can often get a chain reaction going where my ingredient output is helping me complete the most recipes possible each turn. Hopefully this pumps out a lot of ingredients for me to place in my cauldron and my opponent better have some spots open on their workbench or else it's time for me to collect those precious victory points. Since the game ramps up so quickly, you'll often not play more than seven or eight turns each game. As much fun as the comboing is, you'll never find yourself lost or overwhelmed by a myriad of chaining combinations. There are also personality cards that offer different starting ingredients and one-time abilities. For such a fast game, Whirling Witchcraft packs a nice punch. It's not heavy by any means, but it is totally satisfying and, more often than not, gets an immediate replay. It never outstays its welcome, and like that perfect combination of recipe cards, it feels like a well-crafted concoction. Thanks to AEG for the copy of Whirling Witchcraft. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
0: What it do, baby boos? This is Jose, and today I'm going to highlight another game that might have flown under the radar. Moonrakers is designed by Austin Harrison, Max Anderson, and Zach Dixon, and published by Ivy Game Studio. Players are missionaries that are looking to gain a new leader. The leader of the Moonrakers will be the person that is able to gain enough prestige by completing jobs and personal objectives. But this isn't something that you can completely do alone. Moonrakers is a 2-5 to five player semi-cooperative negotiation and deck building game. I know, I know that's a lot. Gameplay is actually pretty straightforward though. On your turn, you have two choices. You can either pass your turn and go back to base where you can discard your hand, gain some credits, and maybe grab a new personal objective that will grant you some prestige, or you can decide to attempt a contract where you could gain even more prestige, credits, and incredibly useful ship upgrades and crew members. But many of these contracts are going to be difficult for you to complete on your own, especially at the beginning of the game. After you've chosen your contract that you wish to complete, you can ask other players to be your allies and join you in completing the contract, and you have to do your best to split up the rewards in such a way that people will want to join you while you still get what you need out of it. Once you have negotiated with people and you made allies, awesome, congratulations, but you're only halfway done because now you have to engage in smart card play that's going to allow you to get everything done. See, unlike other deck builders where you play every card in your hand, in Moonrakers, you can only play one card in your hand per turn. So you really have to think about what you can play. Cards in your deck can allow you to do things like take extra actions, draw extra cards, protect yourself from hazards, and do damage. Because of this, you have to make sure that you play cards in the right order. And you have to get the right number of actions that you need while still being able to play the cards that you need to complete your mission the first person that is able to finish enough missions to collect 10 prestige points will become the leader of the Moonrakers and wins the game. Last time I was on here, I talked about how I wasn't a big fan of deck-building games, and so far, I've talked about two of them. You should check out my review of Deal of Merchants. First off, Moonrakers adds negotiation into the mix, which is probably one of my favorite mechanisms in board games. But it also does a couple of things that help fix the problems that most people have with games that have negotiation. In a lot of games that require negotiation, it's easy to cut out a player once they get to a certain level or they might get close to winning, and it becomes almost impossible for them to do things. But because this game has those personal objective cards that are challenging enough that it'll take a few turns to do, but simple enough that you never feel like any of them are out of reach... You always have an avenue to gain prestige, even if everyone else is going to cut you out of the job. Plus, having those ship upgrades that I mentioned before and the crew cards that give you abilities makes your deck incredibly powerful by the end of the game. So a lot of those jobs that were impossible before now may seem like they are within reach. The other thing I really like about this game is that it encourages smart card play where every card you play is intentional instead of just playing your hand of cards and hoping you can do something with it. And I mentioned before that the ship upgrades that you can get are incredibly useful. They can give you passive abilities like extra actions at the start of your turn, the ability to play one type of card as another type of card, or the ability to play certain cards as free actions. But you can also hire crew cards that get added to your deck and then give you various abilities. Some of them might copy the abilities of other cards on the table, some of them might get you extra credit, some of them might lower the requirements for some of the missions that you're going on, so they're incredibly useful to have as well. This game has skyrocketed to my favorite games list of all time, and it helps that this game is beautifully produced. The base game comes with colorful plastic ships that each have distinctive silhouettes, but you can also get metal ship upgrades if you want. The game comes with metal coins. Nice sturdy cards with incredible art by Luna Saloon. Chunky engraved dice. Really sturdy and really nicely produced cardboard player boards. Ivy Games put a lot of love into this box and it shows. There's already a mini expansion that you can buy off their site. And there's, they've already announced another expansion on the way. If I had to complain about anything, and this is really just a very minor nitpick, is that one of the card sizes that the game uses is non-standard. So if you, like me, like to sleeve your games, especially if it's a game that you really like, you're going to have to buy sleeves directly from them, or you're going to have sleeves that are going to be slightly too big or too small. But again, that's a very minor to nitpick. I know this game is going to see a lot more play on my table, and I hope it lands on yours as well. For the 5 i I'm Jose, and you can find me online on Twitter at Owlazors. that's O-W-L-A-Z-O-R-S, or you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth.
3: Thank you. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Pinochle. I've covered a number of classic card games in the past, even going so far as to learning a few from scratch, like Canasta. This month, I've done the same with Pinochle, or, more accurately, Modern Single Deck Partnership Auction Pinochle. You thought there were a lot of whist variations? Buddy, you have no idea how many ways there are to play Pinochle. We'll start, as I like to with folk games, with a little bit of history. No one invented most classic card games. There wasn't some guy sitting in a tavern in Central Europe, sipping a small beer or a watered wine in the middle of the 17th century, scribbling in a design notebook and hoping someone would ask him what he was working on. Card games spread, like other folk ways and customs, from tavern to tavern, town to town, very slowly over dozens or even hundreds of years. Games are introduced, learned, adopted, and changed over time. Let's say a new saddle maker named Fritz moves to town. Teaches everyone at the inn a game they played in his village back home. Two players, take cards, make melds, keep score. Everybody loves it. Big hit. The saddle maker gets kicked in the head by a donkey and dies. At the funeral, two of his friends get in an argument about the rules of the game he taught them. Otto believes that a royal marriage that's a king and queen of Trump should score 80 points, but Gunther thinks it should only score 40. Since Fritz isn't around to settle the argument anymore, there's a split. The 80-point players form their own club in a different tavern and won't play cards with the 40-point faction anymore. Repeat that scenario a couple of hundred times, and you end up with two radically different games that both have the same origins. The general consensus is that Pinochle, a melding and trick-taking game, is derived from a French game called Bezique by way of southern Germany in the 19th century. Still called Binocle, that's two eyes like binoculars, two decks, two players, whatever, or Binagol in parts of Germany, uh, by the time it made its way to the U.S. via German immigrants in the early 20th century, it was called Pinnacle. By then, played with two modified French decks instead of a traditional German deck, Pinnacle became a staple of German immigrant households, so much so that it was briefly outlawed in some places during the First World War. Now, traditional Pinnacle is a two-player game. and it's very fun, but very luck-dependent. It has some of the same feel as cribbage. It's full of weird rules and card counts left over from its very long history. Why is the lowest card of Trump called the Deese? Why is a pinnacle the Jack of Diamonds and the Queen of Spades? Man, who knows? Just accept it. Two-player pinnacle has a lot more in common with Schnapsen than Spades or Bridge. You might go back and listen to episode 82 where I spoke about my love for Schnapsen, one of the original Marriage card games. So four-player pinnacle is much more advanced as it brings in the very heavy and transformative element of emergence and player interaction. If you're serious about learning pinnacle, playing two-player for a while will help you learn the fairly weird meld scoring. Do not question why these things score the way they do in melds. It doesn't matter. Those are the rules, just live with it. But what does a good Pinochle hand look like? Well, you first have to remember that Single Deck Pinochle is played with a double deck – I know it's confusing, but just live with it – of Ace through Nine. But it's an Ace-Ten-King game. Why? Lots of German games are, again, just accept it. When you're learning how to play, you need a cheat sheet that has all the scoring hands written on it, no question. You'll also probably want a 3x5 card with the words Ace-10-King written on it in Sharpie. Those are the ranks. Ace-10-King-Queen-Jack-9. Just keep saying Ace-10-King, Ace-10-King, Ace-10-King to yourself over and over and over and over, and eventually you'll remember. Melds. What are they? They're basically like when you're making your best poker hand in Michigan Rummy. You're picking from your hand of 12 cards combinations of cards that have value. So you've got the run or the rope. That's the ace, ten, king, queen, jack of trump. Marriages, which is a king and queen called royal marriages when they're trump. A rounds, that's all four of the ace, king, queen, jack, but not tens. Why? I don't know. A pinnacle, which is a jack of diamonds and a queen of spades. And the dece or the dicks, which is the low trump. And these all score variously, which I'm not going to get into here. I don't teach people to play card games. I just talk about them. But knowing how to score melds matters in partnership pinnacle because they're a huge component of how you bid. So bidding, let's get into it. You are bidding on how many points you and your partner can take in the hand, and high bid gets to declare Trump and swap three cards with their partner. This is massively important. You might have what looks like a banging hand, but if you do not get to pick Trump, you may be left with almost nothing. Now I'm not good enough to add new rules, so I play the most basic possible rules. You can also play Pinochle for money, very popular for three players, especially with servicemen during World War II. Fortunately, to learn to play, the excellent and most importantly free website called PinochleClassic.com also uses these most basic rules. I tried every single Android app and every other website before settling on PinochleClassic.com. It has an easy AI setting and a great hand analyzer that will help you not just learn the rules, but understand why you should bid what it recommends. If you have a game group you'd like to teach to play Pinnacle, you could do a lot worse than having everyone train on the website for a week before you sit down to play it. So, who should play Pinnacle? People who are looking for a casual, two-player trick-taking game and don't mind learning a new scoring system. People who are looking for something like spades but don't have the emotional fortitude to learn bridge. And people who love to obsessively memorize variants to classic card games that they'll never actually use. I give Pinochle 25 out of 25 possible points to take in a hand and make your great uncle knock over his cup of Senka in frustration. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. You can also check out my band, the Harper Valley Hypocrites. That's at Harper Valley H I P on most social media.
4: In Edgar Wright's 2007 film Hot Fuzz, the shady goings-on in a not-so-sleepy English village turn out to be connected to the highly contested Village of the Year competition, a source of much pride for the community leadership, but one that leads to outright mayhem. The tableau-building card game Village Green, published in 2020 by Osprey Games, features a lot less crime, but a similar setting, as 1-5 to five gardeners compete to win the Village Green of the Year award for their hometown. Think beautiful landscapes, charming structures, and hardcore bickering between neighbors. Designed by Pierre Sylvester and illustrated by Joanna Rosa, this charming game offers a light, puzzly experience in just half an hour or so. Perfect for enjoying over a spot of tea. The bulk of the game consists of just two decks of cards. Award cards featuring scoring criteria, and green cards which show different garden features. In addition, there's a start player card to make sure everyone gets equal turns, and a village card for each player. Over the course of the game, each player constructs a 4x4 grid of cards in front of them, with their village card in the top left, award cards filling the top row and leftmost column, and then those green cards making up the remaining 3x3 section. Turns in village green are simple. The active player can choose to either draw an award card and place it in an empty space or over an existing one, they can draw a green card into their hand and then place one in an empty space, or draw a green card before discarding a green card to the bottom of the deck. Those green cards usually have one of three types of flowers on them in one of three possible colours, and players must match orthogonally adjacent cards in either type or colour to this icon, which makes placement increasingly tricky as the game progresses. The only green cards that don't have flowers are the lawn cards, which can go next to anything. They're also the only type of green card that can have other cards placed on top of them, provided that the new card meets all adjacency roles. As well as flowers, green cards will feature ponds, trees, and structures, like gazebos or statues, and various award cards are going to look for those features during scoring. Plus, as a bonus, placing a structure lets the player immediately draw and place an award card into their tableau, essentially giving them an extra turn. Play continues in this manner till one of the decks is empty or someone has filled their entire tableau, at which point players finish the round. Then each placed award card will be scored for the green cards that make up its row or column, plus pawns and unused village cards earn some additional points. Once everything's added up, the winning tableau gets to be declared village green of the year, while the rest of the players applaud gently and mutter about the judges' favoritism. The fact that each award card only scores the three cards in its row or column means that players have to carefully consider where to place each card in Village Green for the greatest impact. This, combined with the adjacency rolls for the flower icons, makes for quite the spatial puzzle and it can cause players to curse the limited selection of cards in the display and in their hand, as frequently it seems that the one card you really need just won't show up. When these placement options do get limited, the player's village card comes to the rescue. In addition to providing the player with a unique village name and illustration, each player can also choose to flip their card over for a one-time benefit. It can either be used to replace the available card display of either award or green cards before a selection is made, or it can be used to place a green card on top of another non-lawn green card in order to correct a less-than-stellar placement. Unflipped village cards are only worth a single point at the end of the game, so careful timing and use of the card's one-time bonus is usually a good play and something to keep in mind. Village Green is a gorgeous little game. The green cards are simply beautiful. They feature watercolors of appropriate scenes, often with the right color and type of flower within the art to match the card's icon. Unfortunately, from a play perspective, those icons aren't the greatest. While the different flowers are distinguished by their art and by a background shape, the yellow icons especially are hard to make out against the white background. Having to keep double-checking exactly which icon you're looking at can be extremely frustrating when it's added to the process of choosing your next play. The titles on the award cards are also hard to read due to the choice of text color, though this is at least less critical to gameplay. But when added to the frustration of the yellow icons, I do find it affects my enjoyment of the game nonetheless. But even with those frustrating color choices, Village Green is still a game I want more people to experience. It's a 20-30 to 30 minute play that can be relaxing or fiercely competitive depending on the players at the table. And Either way, it works extremely well. The rules are simple enough, which combined with that short playtime makes it a great small box option to throw in your bag for a variety of gaming situations, and I even enjoy the solo game as a fun puzzle, despite not being a huge fan of playing board games on my own. I highly recommend taking the time to build up your own hopefully award-winning village green. After all, don't you want to show those guys one town over who's boss? For the 5 by, this is Ruth, and until next time, I'm off to pretend I know anything about gardening, but if you need me, you can find me on Twitter at Ruth, that's an R, 4 O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening
3: to
1: the 5 By. Follow us on Twitter at 5 Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5BuyGames.com. If you like what you hear on the 5 By and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 Games. Thank you!